Today we begin a series that is and isn't a break from our Year of Biblical Literacy series. First, let me explain what Year of Biblical Literacy is if you're new to the church. We have been in a a year-long initiative where we are reading through the Bible together as a church community. Um, And we're reading the Bible with the express hope of becoming more literate in how we read the Bible, how the Bible works together, and how we understand the Bible. On Sundays, we've been following the story arc of what we've been reading throughout the week and doing sermons that correlate. All these sermons can be found online. This week, we began, this last week, we began the New Testament book of Acts, which is about the birth of Jesus' church. Today, I won't be teaching from Acts, but I will be teaching about Jesus' church. Um, And the part of Jesus' church that I want to talk about today is our church, Reality San Francisco. Today, I'll start a vision series. Um, We do this almost every year. I I wanna talk about who we are as a church community and what we're about. But this year will be a bit different. What I want to focus on is our values. What do we value as a church community? So do you see how this isn't and is a part of your biblical literacy? It's not really, um, but we are talking about Jesus' church as we're reading through the book of Acts. So that's kind of how we get there. Um, It's kind of squirrely, but whatever. That's where we're at today. And so I want to talk about our values. Our values are the kind of people we want to be as we move in the vision of our church. That's what we say um, as a a leadership team. Our our values are the kind of people that we want to be as we carry out the vision, as we move into the vision of our church. So let me start by talking to you about the vision of our church. This is our vision statement. It's found on our website. And if you've ever come to a Welcome to Reality class, I talk about this. Um, Our vision statement is pretty simple. It's been there since we started a church community. We added this second part um, a few years in, but this is it. It is a community following Jesus, seeking renewal in our city. We are a community following Jesus that's under Christ, that's following him, that's learning how to practice the way of Jesus, and we're doing that in community because Christ saved a family of people into his family, not just isolated people that Jesus is your personal savior and you do whatever by yourself but we're actually a community of people following Jesus and learning what it looks like to follow Jesus in San Francisco. And as we follow Jesus as a community, we believe that renewal will happen in us um, and and then working its way out. Renewal will happen in our lives and in our relationships and in our church and then in our neighborhood and then in in our workplaces and it works its way out into the city. So that's our vision. Our values are this. Values are faith and humility and hospitality and rootedness. And this is going to be the next four weeks on Sunday morning. Faith, humility, hospitality, rootedness. We think that our values are what it will feel like in our hearts and in our minds and even in our bodies as we accomplish our vision. So a community following Jesus, seeking renewal in our city, that, okay, that sounds great, but what does that feel like? What is that, what is that, what is that experience as we're doing that in San Francisco? What, what does it feel like to be a community following Jesus, seeking renewal in our city? It will feel like faith. It will feel like humility. It will feel like hospitality. It will feel like rootedness. We think our values are the culture which our vision gets accomplished. What kind of culture is a community following Jesus that's seeking renewal in its city? What kind of culture does that create? We believe it's a culture that values faith in Jesus, that values humility to be in community, rightly, that is radically hospitable to the outsider and is rooted in Jesus as it roots itself in San Francisco, in this very transient, hyper-connected, but terribly disconnected city. So are you with me? So values. 
faith, humility, hospitality, rootedness. These values also shape our community groups and our church. So if you're in a community group, these words might not be that new to you. You might know them really well. Today, I would like to talk about the value of faith because we value faith as a community. But what does that mean? Faith is a very broad subject, very, very broad subject. So what do we mean when we say that we value faith, that we hope that every member of reality, every person that calls reality their church and is practicing the way of Jesus with us in this church, when we say, when we hope that everyone in here values faith, what do we mean by that? So I wanna tell you three stories from the scriptures, three stories that try to capture this and what this might mean for us. So the first one is in Genesis 15. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 15, um, if you, or your device, or whatever you have. Genesis 15. And this first story, above it, I would write, faith is amen to God. Amen? Okay. Faith is amen to God. So in Genesis 15, if you're there, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Sorry about that. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, one of the ushers will, will get you one. Absolutely free. Take home, read yourself. Give away as Christmas gift coming up. Whatever you want to do. It's up to you. First one is this. First story. Genesis 15. Faith is amen to God. Okay, so in Genesis 15, we meet this guy called Father Abraham. This is what we call him. It's what we sing about in children's church. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons. You know, that's not. Um, but when, when we meet Abraham, his name is not Abraham. It's Abram. And he's not a father. He's very old, though. He's very old Abram. So we don't sing that, really. Very old Abram. Um, that's barren. Not, no kids. Like, we don't sing that song. We sing, um, Father Abraham had many sons. How did he get there? Uh, God appears to Abraham. His name was Abram. In a vision. And God promises that although he is childless and he's very old, he's getting old, he and his wife Sarah, who is also very old, would in time have a son and eventually, his descendants would be as uncountable as the stars in the sky. That's hyperbole, by the way. Hyperbole. Um, you get the point. He, he, um, let, let, me just, let me just read it to you so you know it's there. Some of you guys are like, I don't know if I believe you. Let, just read this. Verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. See, I told you his name was Abram. In a vision. Do not be afraid, God says to Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is from your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness, it says. That word believe, and Abram believed the Lord, is the Hebrew word amen, where we get the word what? Amen. Or if you're British, amen, right? It's the Hebrew word amen, and it means this. It's typically, today, when we say amen, it's typically a social cue, cue to let everyone know that I'm done praying, or someone's done praying, right? Like, please say amen, amen. Oh, you're done. Good, that's good. I love that word amen. It means you're done praying. Um, or when someone's preaching and someone says amen, it means 
keep on preaching. It means, keep on, yeah, it means go ahead. Keep doing this. This More of that. That's what I want. Come on. That's what amen means. So it either means like, you know, like, hey, someone's done praying or keep talking, keep preaching. Like one of the two. But that's not really what it means here. Um, that's not what amen means when it says, and Abraham, amen, amen God. Amen is a declaration of trust. Amen is a declaration of trust. Amen is Abraham saying that he trusts God to bring about what God said he would do. So when God says, you're old, you're kind of dying, your wife, his womb is all but dead, but I'm going to give you a son and your family is going to kind of, it's kind of going to be like the stars in the sky. You're not going to even be able to count them. And Abram says, amen, amen. I take you at your word. Even when it makes no sense to me, I don't see how you're going to do this. I trust in you. He's old. His wife is old. He's getting beyond years of childbearing. Not physically possible to have kids, losing hope in his own body. But against all those odds, he says, amen to God. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Abraham simply believed that God was able to pull it off. It wasn't when God said, I'm gonna gonna give you a son. It wasn't that Abraham said, God, I believe that that is possible for you. I believe that you could do that. I believe that all things are possible with God and that you can pull that off. When Abraham was saying, amen, he was not saying, if anyone can pull this off, it's probably you, God. That is not what he's saying. Believing that God can do something is more of an intellectual belief, which has its place, but it's not what's going on here. And it's not what God requires. There's something deeper, and there's something even more profound going on here. Abraham's amen to God is not simply a faith that God was able to give him a child. It was trust in God to give him a child. There's a huge difference there. It's not a faith that it was possible. It was a trust in God to do it, to bring it about. And there is a big difference between these two. Because at this point in the story, Abraham is not even saying amen to a creed. He's not saying amen to a system of belief of who God is. He's not saying amen to an intellectual understanding of Yahweh. He is saying amen to a person. He is saying amen to the person of God. He doesn't even know God, really. All he knows of God is this. He's walking along. He's following this other Um, worshiping another false god and Yahweh appears to him and says I want you to leave your home and I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you children offspring and a land and Abraham says okay I'll follow you he knows nothing about this god he doesn't go could you give me a creed like a like uh, uh, can can I see on your website like what you believe first um or what I'm supposed to believe first before I even none of that he says he says amen to the person of God he says amen to him He says, I'll I'll follow you. And then later on, God brings him outside, shows him the stars and says, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. And Abraham says, Abram says, amen. I trust you. The reason why we say amen at the end of prayer, because it is a final word of declaration of trust. It's saying this, God, I've said my peace and I put this matter into your hands. Now I trust you with this prayer. That's what amen means. It means, God, I, I now I've said everything I'm going to say, and I trust you. I trust it into your hands. Because faith is a who word. Believing is a who word. Trust is a who word. What these mean is that I, when I put my faith, I'm putting my faith in God, in the person of God, and who God is. We make faith a that word. 
We make faith, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Which allows room for a whole rise of a whole new segment of people that they are calling the INOs. Um, These are people who are, they're called, especially in a voting segment, and we we have that kind of going on in our nation right now, um, called in name only. And what this means is this, I know, in in name only. They are Christians in name only. They are, the way that they vote or the way they self-identify is, quote, Christian, which means this, they check all the right boxes. So do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Oh yeah, check, I got that one. Do you believe that Jesus is God's son? Check. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Check. Do you believe that? Check, 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 check. And checking the boxes in a belief that. The problem with this way of thinking about faith and belief is that's way too easy. That's way too easy to do. That is so easy to go, well, I believe that. Well, I believe that. I believe that. I intellectually believe that. I can get there. Look at this, James. James, if you've read the book of James in the New Testament, you're gonna get there soon. James does not pull punches at all. He just gets right to it. He says this. In this whole section that he's talking about faith as action, he says this in chapter two, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. Hear what he said there? Oh, you believe that. Oh, you believe that Jesus is God's son? Oh, yeah, so do demons. Yeah, that's cool. Um, you believe God? Yeah, that's, demons do that too. Yeah. <laughs> Believing that God is X, Y, or Z has its place, but it's so easy that a demon can do it. It's that easy. Technically, a demon can be a Christian in name only. That's what it's saying here, technically. And what is required from God is trust in God. That is something a demon does not have. Trust in the person of God. And when we're talking about faith, we're not so much talking about believing as much we're talking about trusting. So when the Bible talks about faith, and talks about belief, it talks about trust. Trust is being all in with God. Like I am completely all in with you. And my whole livelihood is like wrapped up in you. And my whole future is wrapped up in you. And I've left family and friends to follow you. And if you don't come through, I'm done. All of my life is wrapped up with you. When we're talking about faith, faith, we're not talking so much about believing as much we are about trusting. And trusting is that. Simply believing can be easy. See, believing can give us wiggle room to think our way out of a tight spot with God. It allows us room to go, well, you know what? That thing that happened in life did not match up with what I believed, therefore I'm out. It gives you wiggle room. But trusting doesn't give us any wiggle room. Trusting's like, I trust God. Yeah, but this happened. I know, and I can't explain it. I trust God. And trust takes work. Trust is not easy. The Christian life is not effortless. If someone told you the Christian life is effortless, they have one, not A, read the Bible, or B, they're not a Christian. So those two things. The Christian life is not effortless. The Christian life takes work. And the work that we do starts with trust. That takes, trust takes work. It takes work for us to trust in God. Yesterday, I was on, on, the, on a friend's roof watching the Blue Angels, right? Like half of San Francisco was on some roof illegally watching the Blue Angels. And, um, <laughs> and I was there with uh, some friends and uh, Tark was there and Isabel, his four-year-old daughter, was there. If you've met Isabel, she's, she's, she's a doll. She's cute. And we had to get up onto this like large platform to watch the roof and then up, up 
on this top part. Anyway, so it's about as tall as me, like this wall and then a roof. And I had to jump up. And so Tara got up there first, and he's literally yanking people up, like, <laughs> just like Hulk. And it was, and I get up there, he's like, Dave, just give me your arms, I'll yank you up. I'm like, uh, I don't think you can, oh. And he just like literally is, <laughs> all the way up. I mean, I lost a toe, but it's fine. Other than that, it's fine. Tark's a strong guy. And so we're all getting down, and Isabel is, is sitting on the ledge, and Tark's down below, and has pretty, pretty much has her in his hands, and he just says, um, jump, daddy's got you. And I'm, and I'm like, Isabel, he like yanked me up. Uh, he can handle you, you're like a little bit smaller than I am. I'm sure that he can handle, and she even knows, like my dad's strong, I know, I know. And then she, so Tark counts, one, two, and she's like, I can see her little body like, oh, no, no. Like that, and that, that like, thing that happens where she like lets go is, is work. That takes, actually takes a lot of effort. It seems easy. Well, intellectually we know, like Tark's way strong. He can definitely catch his own daughter. He would not let her fall. Yes, we, we know this in our head, but there's still effort of going, I have to let go. And I think that's what faith feels like. Faith feels like letting go. Letting go of what? Faith feels like letting go of control. Second story. Um, Mark 5. Under this, I'd put faith is losing control. Mark 5, I'm going to read this to you. This is literally one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I say that a lot, but I really mean it this time. I promise. This is so good. I'm just going to read it to you, and I'll make a little comments as we go along. Mark chapter 5. I've referred to this story a lot, and we have even over the last few weeks. Let me just read it to you, um, because two people kind of cross paths here. Um, when Jesus had, oh, verse 21, I'm sorry, if you have a Bible, there. 521, when Jesus had uh, again crossed over the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him, and he was by the lake. Um, Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus, Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. By the way... Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, the thing is, the Bible looks very favorably on doctors. Luke was a doctor, wrote Luke and Acts. But what it's, it's, it's saying here is that she, she exhausted all of her resources, had nothing left, did not get better from doctors or people or anything, but got worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak, like the hem of his garment, the bottom of his garment, because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Strange thing to think. Immediately, her bleeding stopped when she felt, and she felt in her body she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. I'm going to ask Jesus about the sentence, what is that? I don't know what that is. He's like, whoa, stop. Power has gone out from me. That's just a weird sentence. He turned around and the crowd asked, and he asked the crowd, who touched my clothes? The thing was, everyone's touching his clothes. This is a weird statement. They say to him, you see people crowding against you? And they answer, and yet you ask, who touched me? Like everyone is literally touching you right now. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then a woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. What does faith mean? Trust. Daughter, your trust has healed you. 
Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came to this house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? They called him a teacher. They're basically saying this. Jesus could have done something when she was alive, but now that she's dead, Jesus' power stops. Don't bother him anymore. He could have taught you something. He's a rabbi. He could have even done like maybe a miraculous thing because he's a a miracle worker, but she's dead, and that's where his power stops because no one can go on that side of the grave. Don't bother him anymore. His power has ceased. He can't help you anymore. Move along. That's what they said to him. Move along. There's nothing else here. Overhearing, verse 36, what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just trust. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus, was there. Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. And he put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with them. And he went into where the child was. And he took her by the hand. And he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and he told them to give her something to eat. Neither Jairus or this woman's faith was very impressive. And when they came to Jesus, they both had a plan. But what it means to follow Jesus, to place your faith, to place your trust in Jesus is letting go of your plans. Jairus insisted that Jesus go home with him. He went, he went to Jesus like, would you come home with me? My daughter is sick. Now, there is an account of, a, of Jesus healing a centurion's Gentile, a Gentile centurion's servant without going to his house. The, 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 the centurion went to Jesus, he was a Gentile, and he said, Jesus, I'd like you to heal, but you know what? You don't even have to come to my house. I believe that you're so powerful that you can just say the word and my, and, 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 and my servant will be healed. Jesus said, I have not seen faith like this even in all of Israel. Jairus' faith didn't reach that level. He didn't say, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. I just know if you said, his faith wasn't there. He begged Jesus, please come to my home. And Jesus did not say to him, well, your faith isn't quite there yet. When you ask me to come over, but then say, I don't have to come over because you believe that my word's that powerful, then you come to me. He didn't do that. He said, I'll go with you. And when he was on the way, he meets a woman. And the woman's faith is really, really wonky. It's almost superstitious. She just wanted to touch this garment. She didn't want to meet Jesus at all. She didn't want to talk to Jesus. She didn't even want to worship Jesus. She just reached out barely on what he was wearing. And he touched, she touched the hem of his garment. And when she did, Jesus knew that power went from him. And when he asked who did it, she did not answer. She wasn't, she wasn't like, oh my gosh, it was me. It was me. Praise God. Let's like everyone, come on. She didn't do that. She, she, she hid. She didn't want to say it was me. And then they both, so both of them had this like really imperfect, wonky kind of faith. One of them is even a bit superstitious. And then they both came to Jesus with a plan. The woman tried to control the whole situation. She wanted like a drive-by healing. Like I'm just going to drive by and like touch him. And I want it on my own terms. I, this is how I see this thing going down. I'm going to touch his garment really creepy-like, like just like, ooh, touch it. And then I'm gone. I'm going to leave. And Jairus came looking like, hey, I, 
This is how I want you to do, Jesus. I want you to heal my daughter by coming over. This is how I see the day going. I'm gonna come find you, I'm gonna bring you over to my house and you're gonna heal my daughter. But both the woman and Jairus, though having faith, went to Jesus with a plan, almost trying to stay in control of the whole situation. It's like, I'll follow Jesus, but this is how I'll follow Jesus. I'll go to Jesus for healing, but this is how I want it to go down. I'll serve Jesus, but this is what it has to look like if I serve him. This is how much time I can give him every week. And Jesus is like, no, I want your entire life. I want it all. So the woman and Jairus both were with, both with Jesus for about five minutes, and both their plans get thrown out the window. Five minutes. The woman tried to get this healing just by touching and done in secret, and Jesus says, no, I want you to go public. Because just having faith is not virtuous in itself. Listen, people can have faith in some truly awful and tyrannical things in people. You can have faith and it can be misguided and you can hurt a lot of people. So Jesus didn't say, hey, faith in like, if you go to like Forever 21 and start touching hymns of garments and just have faith, that's not, that's not, doesn't work. Faith in garments is not the thing. Faith in hymns is not the thing. Faith in your own faith is not the thing. It's trust in Jesus that's the thing. And so Jesus makes sure, okay, I want you to know that it was your trust. Because she said, when, you heard, when she heard about Jesus, she's just, if I touch the hem of his garment, he will make me well. And Jesus wanted her to know your faith that's placed imperfectly in me is what makes you well. This is what Jesus was trying to do. Faith in Jesus. Jesus makes sure he knows it's not just faith in faith, but faith in Christ. Jairus tried to get Jesus over to his house for a healing, and Jesus said, you're not getting a healing today, Jairus. You're getting a resurrection today. He was not expecting a resurrection. He was wanting a healing. So the reality is when you place your faith in Christ, you have to give him way more than you planned, but on the other hand, you get from Christ way more than you ask or imagine. When you trust in Christ, you have to lose control. Bottom line, you have to lose control. And that might not involve, that, that does involve a lot of fear. It's scary not to be in control. You can imagine the fear that must have gripped the heart of the woman when she, Jesus stopped and shouted, who touched me? Because someone just got healed and they're not fessing up about it. Like the fear that rose in her heart. Can you imagine the fear that must have gripped or in crippled Jairus when the message got to him that his daughter was dead, all because Jesus was talking to this woman. It's a fearful thing not to be in control. But Jesus turned to Jairus and said, do not fear, keep on trusting. Do not fear, keep your eyes on me. I can imagine Jesus just like, like keep your, and Jairus' world was spinning. Um, I can imagine being a parent and losing a child is probably the worst thing that can ever, ever, ever happen in this life. And so the second that Jairus heard that his daughter was dead, his world was being flipped upside down. His world was spinning. His eyes were out of focus, everything. And Jesus looks him right in the eyes like, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. Don't doubt. Keep trusting. Keep trusting. Take me to your house. Keep trusting. Take me to your house. And I imagine what Jesus is asking from Jairus is this. What he's saying to him is this. Entrust your daughter to me. Entrust your daughter to me. At this point in the narrative, Jairus has, like, he has his daughter and he knows what he needs for his own daughter. 
I have to get him, her the best care possible. I've gone everywhere, I'm going to Jesus next. And then when she dies, it's it, I have no more control, I don't know where to turn. And Jesus is like, will you entrust me with your daughter? And I imagine as a dad, that's the hardest thing in the world to do. In AA, they have this preamble to the 12 steps, which is basically a paragraph about letting go and surrendering control. You may have heard this paragraph. Let me read it to you. It goes like this. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any link to get it, then you are ready to take, a, to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way. That sentence right there. You like that sentence? Listen to this. We thought we can find an easier, softer way. I think that describes everyone before they come to Jesus. There's got to be an easier way than that. There's got to be an easier way than completely losing control. But we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at a turning point. We have asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. That is so important to any recovery. And faith in God, not to downplay alcoholism, but faith in God feels kind of like a recovery. An ongoing recovery from independence, from self-reliance, from there has to be an easier way, I can think my way out of this one, to a dependency on the person of God, no matter what. That you believe in God and you trust in God anyway. And you're like, my life is this, but I trust in God anyway. Third and final story, Psalm 73. And lastly, moving towards trust. This one's a personal one for me. This psalm has always been a personal one. This last week, we had an early morning elder meeting, praying through some really hard stuff um, going on. And uh, we called a meeting to pray through some stuff, to talk about some stuff. And um, I didn't even, like, I, I kind of... You know, you sit around an elder meeting, and I called the meeting, and so everyone's looking at me like, okay, hey, start the meeting, and I'm like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to start this meeting. And so Dave Daly goes, well, let's just read a psalm, and he does the holy flip. Have you done the holy flip? Like the flip, <laughs> just flip and point, that thing? <clears throat> he's like, let's just, boom, and he puts his finger down, and he's like, that's the one. And um, I, don't, I don't even believe in that stuff, but God was, did something through that thing. He turned to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, I'm like, oh gosh, wow. It says this, verses one and two. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped and I nearly lost my foothold. The psalmist starts off by talking about who God is and that God is good and that he is good to those who are pure at heart. The psalmist knows these things as a faithful Israel, Israelite. 
he knows that God blesses the righteous and God punishes the wicked, period. That's the way God works. God punishes the wicked and God blesses the righteousness. That means, that equals God's goodness. God is good, meaning he does what is right. But this psalmist had almost stumbled. He nearly slipped. Why did he nearly slip? Verse three and five. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. He sees that the wicked prosper. What's up with that, God? I thought the wicked are punished, but the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. That makes no sense, God. Explain yourself. I don't understand. It seems, God, it doesn't even seem like you're matching up to what you even said about yourself. It seemed that you're doing nothing about this, God. And here is, is where his faith, that God is like this, starts to unravel. I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I had had all these structures in place where I believe that you acted according to this and you did this certain thing, but now you're working outside of that and I don't understand what's going on and I think, I don't know if I can do this. And the thought of God not coming through to what he has heard about God is so distressing that he's coming, he's literally coming undone. Look at verse 15 and 16. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. He's saying that he couldn't even talk about what he was going through. He had such a crisis of faith, a dark night of the soul, that all he could do was write a psalm to God. He couldn't even process it with other people. He's like, if I started telling people what I was thinking, I might have caused your children to stumble. I might have betrayed your children. I might have like, I might have like so disbelief in your people. I couldn't even do that. I couldn't even process that with them. I tried to understand all this and it troubled me deeply saying that he's trying to understand the evil in the world and how God fits into it and it troubled him so much and so deeply. And then he says this in verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. There's a moment in the psalmist where he can't take thinking his way out of this, so he just decides to enter the sanctuary of God. I can't reconcile the, the way the world is. I just can't reconcile it. I can't reconcile while the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. I, don't, I can't reconcile while the, how the rich people oppress the poor and the poor people can't. I, I just don't, I don't understand it. Why some people are born into a place where it's just, they have the lavishness of, of, of society and wealth and, and privilege and some people are born in the worst possible situations. I don't understand it. And all he can do is go to the sanctuary of God. There he sees that God can be trusted because one day God will eventually come through and execute his justice, just not yet. And that a lot of patience is needed. And the reason why I share this is because all the evidence around this guy seemed to point toward how God doesn't follow through on what he said he would. That's what it feels like. The psalmist, though, still enters the sanctuary. And what this means is this is what happens when your daughter dies and Jesus doesn't raise her from the dead. I've experienced this with very, very close people. What happens when Jesus doesn't raise your daughter from the dead? What happens when people prophesy over your daughter, oh, she's going to be made well, or your son, oh, they're going to be made well, or your spouse, or whatever, oh, they're going to be made well, and it doesn't happen. What happens then? 
See, a belief in a system can give you the wiggle room to go, I'm, just, I'm out of this, I can't do this anymore. But trust doesn't give you that wiggle room. Trust goes, well, then I'm gonna show up in the sanctuary of God. And I'm gonna keep trusting anyway. I'm gonna keep trusting anyway. And what the psalmist does is he moves toward God, not away from God. He just steps toward, he leans into God. He doesn't go, you know what? I, I can't reconcile this stuff, I'm, I'm out, I can't do this. He just steps in. Trust is moving towards God even when everything seems stacked against you. Some of you in here are struggling with your faith in God. Due to our world's problems, maybe something personal you're going through, maybe a best friend of yours is going through something. And you had believed God said certain things or things that he would do or promises he'd made and now you don't see those things happening and you're tired, but you're here. You're here right now. And you've made a move toward God. Simple as it may seem. It's not the mountain moving kind of stuff. It's not the stuff that people can like talk to God and say, God, we want you to do this. You just don't have that. You just go, I just took a step and I, I just called an Uber and got here. That's, that's, that's it. That was my faith today. And that's, that's what's going on in this song. And that can be the biggest act of faith in God, just showing up, trusting enough to move towards God. For the psalmist, this was the only option open to him. This was the only option open to him because he had placed his trust in the person of God. So he was not going anywhere. He, could go in, he couldn't go anywhere. His, his belief was not in a system of beliefs, but it was in the person of God. A system of beliefs has its place. It does have its place. I love systematic theology. I love all that stuff. But our faith must be in the person of Jesus. So when we say we value faith, we mean that we value as a community, we value making decisive movements towards God in trust against all odds at times. That we are learning to let go of our control and depend on the person of Jesus. That we are okay with others bring their, bringing their wonky, sometimes superstitious faith to Jesus because we trust that Jesus will learn, will take this person and learn how to make sure it's put in the right place. And so when people come into our lives or in our community group or in our church that have this sort of wonky faith, we don't go, no, 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 no. Didn't you read on the website? We believe this, 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 and this. We go, we trust that your, my, our wonky faith, Jesus will take and place squarely on him. And we can trust him for that. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would move into some of these areas that you might be calling us to lose control or to let go of control. The more and more that I see it, Lord, I think that we're all in some sort of recovery. Our recovery from self-reliance and independence, our recovery from our coping mechanisms or our ways that we attach or detach or you're making all of us like you, Lord. You're making all of us like you. And so this morning, I pray that we make a move towards you. I pray for those people who just got in, their, in a car today or put on their shoes today and just walked over here or drove here. And that was the only thing they had the strength to do today because their faith is like hanging on a thread. I pray they'd go deeper still. I ask God that you'd give them the strength and maybe even 
the courage to move even closer toward you, to come forward and remember you through communion, to come and ask for prayer that has really no direction, just saying, I need prayer, or maybe even coming and kneeling. We pray for, I pray for those that are grasping onto their life right now, like holding on and saying, yeah, but let me, I can do this. I can do this. I know I've, I've, I've messed up. I know that I've done that, I, but I can do this this time. I pray, God, that they would let go. And that's gonna feel like a trust fall. That's gonna feel like all those cliche things that we say. It's gonna feel like that. But I pray this church would step into faith in Christ. And I pray for those that have not placed their trust and their faith in you, Jesus. But today, they're, they're, they're there. They're right there. And they want to. I pray they'd move a step towards you. They would, they would receive your love and forgiveness and grace. They would confess their need for you and receive you as their God and Savior. And so we move towards you now. In Jesus' name, amen.